Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Moses and the Burning Bush. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 3rd, 2017. Last month, my wife and I attended a Jewish wedding of dear friends in our neighborhood. Two times during the service, the rabbi noted that the ceremony was, quote, according to the tradition of Moses. Her remark reminded me, as Aviva Zornberg put it in her biography about Moses, that no figure looms larger in Jewish culture than Moses, and few have stories that are more enigmatic or compelling. Moses speaks today, 3,300 years after he lived. The story of Moses unfolds during the Egyptian genocide. We read in Exodus 1.22 that all the Egyptians were ordered to throw every Hebrew boy into the Nile River. The trauma of four centuries of exile, slave labor, ruthless oppression, economic exploitation, all that was ending in a catastrophe. More than a thousand years later, in that most Hebraic of Gospels, Matthew drew a literary parallel between the old Moses and Jesus the new Moses. Whereas the pagan Magi of Persia worshipped the baby Jesus, Herod of Rome tried to kill him and all the male babies of Bethlehem. The church came to honor the slaughter of the innocents as the first martyrs. The infant Son of God fled as a displaced refugee to a foreign country, Egypt, Israel's sworn and symbolic enemy that had oppressed the Hebrews for 430 years. The place where Pharaoh unleashed his infanticide against the firstborn Israelite boys became a refuge for the baby Jesus. The baby Moses survived the Egyptian infanticide and his own faults and fears because of the courage and compassion of seven women who were specifically mentioned in his birth narrative. The midwives Shipra and Pua were two ordinary women who performed extraordinary acts of faith. They defied the Egyptian genocide. Why? Because we read in 117, they feared God rather than Pharaoh. When asked about their disobedience, they lied about what they were doing. It's been suggested that their no to Pharaoh and their yes to God might be the first known incident of civil disobedience in history. A thousand years before Antigone defied the royal decree of Creon in order to honor her deceased brother, and then, just like that, these two women disappear from the biblical narrative, never to be mentioned again. Moses' biological mother also resisted the genocide when she hid him for three months. Then, the text says, when she could hide him no longer, she made a basket of papyrus, put her baby inside it, then floated it onto the Nile River. She saved Moses by simultaneously disobeying and obeying Pharaoh's command to throw every male Hebrew baby into the river.
Third, there's Moses' adoptive mother who discovered the floating basket. She's the daughter of Pharaoh and an Egyptian princess. She was accompanied by her women attendants who helped her to bathe in the river. And the text specifically mentions a slave girl who retrieved the baby Moses from the Nile. Partly out of pity for the crying baby, and surely out of fear of knowing Pharaoh's command, the little slave girl blurted out, This is one of the Hebrew babies. What should be done with him? Her discovery could have meant death, but it turned out to be life. We read that Miriam, the sister of Moses, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. She must have been no more than a young girl herself. She inserted herself into the story quite cleverly by suggesting to the princess that she obtain a Hebrew woman to nurse the crying baby. Shouldn't human pity for a crying baby take precedence over a heartless decree? And so she proceeded to get her own biological mother, the mother of Moses also, who became his nurse. When the child grew older, says the text, Moses' mother returned him to Pharaoh's daughter. He would grow up with an ambiguous triple identity. Moses was a Hebrew born into the house of Levi. He was raised by his adoptive mother as a prince at the center of Egyptian political power. And then later as an adult, he married Zipporah of Midian, the land where he fled into exile for 40 years. After the king of Egypt died during Moses' long exile in Midian, the writer emphasizes the suffering of the Hebrews with four synonyms. They groaned, cried out, screamed, and moaned. And, in a parallel fashion, God responded in a fourfold way. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he took notice. In the far side of the desert at Mount Horeb, God called Moses to return to Egypt the land of Israel's genocide, to mediate between God and his people and between God and Pharaoh. We read that he appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. His call was an impossible burden, fraught with ambiguities. When God called him, Moses responded, Here am I. But a few verses later, he wondered, who am I? God assured him, the people will listen. But Moses worried, they won't listen. So he was full of ambivalence, inhibitions, fears, and doubts, and rightly so. As Zornberg says in her biography, there's a certain kind of reticence or circumspection that halts the true prophet faced with the inscrutable God, whose revelation must be narrowed into what can be said. No one in their right mind would think themselves worthy or capable of that call, or for that matter, any call, to speak the unspeakable, 
to name the unnameable, the presumption, the audacity, the futility, to remove your sandals and stand on holy ground. And so we read that Moses instinctively hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Nonetheless, God insisted, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And when Moses doubted his deepest self, God assured him in chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you. In the parallel reading about Jeremiah's own burdensome call, God promised the exact same thing. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Jeremiah 1.8 Such is the paradox in the burden of prophecy observed by the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. He wrote, It is laid upon the stammering to bring the voice of heaven to earth. For books this week, I review a novel called Often I Am Happy. The author is the Danish Jens Christian Grundahl. New York, 12 Books, 2017. This novel is 167 pages. There's a bittersweet sort of equanimity that has come to characterize 70-year-old Eleanor after the death of her husband, George. Time does heal many, if not all, of our wounds, or at least it gives us a different and more nuanced perspective on life. To process her grief and the flood of memories, Eleanor shares her candid thoughts with her long-dead best friend, who happens to be George's first wife, Anna. There are the brute facts of our lives, she observes, but it's quite another thing to interpret and make sense of those facts. Eleanor never had kids of her own, but she did her best as the stepmother to George and Anna's twin boys, Stefan and Morton. They were only seven when Anna died, and suffice it to say that her relationship with them as 40-something adults is much more complicated than when they were young. She sold the family home, much to the chagrin of the two boys. There are family secrets of all sorts, her own mother's complicated story during the war, a father she never knew, a disastrous ski trip to Perse 30 years after the fact, and numerous burdens that she has carried through life and never shared with anyone. The title of the book comes from a song by B.S. Ingeman that Grandal places at the beginning of the book. The song goes, Often I am happy, and yet I want to cry, for no heart fully shares my joy. Often I am sorrowful, yet have to laugh, that no one shall my fearful tear behold. And so Eleanor confides to Anna. She says, There isn't a thing that doesn't pass off. It strikes me that my account must seem sad to you, but I am not a sad person, and you know that. 
Often I am happy, as the song goes, happy inside, even if I can't always show it. It is all just something that passes you by. You're being pushed and pressed, sometimes even being crushed, and you can be knocked off your course, but you remain the same on the inside. The Danish author Jens Christian Grundahl. The title of the novel, Often I Am Happy. For movies this week, I review a film called Good Luck Soup from the year 2016. When my wife's grandfather returned from his life as a missionary in Japan, he ended up back home participating in an unsavory episode of American history. He was a translator in the Japanese internment camps in California. That's the subject of this one-hour PBS documentary. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States imprisoned about 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry. About two-thirds of these people were American citizens. The filmmaker Matthew Hasaguchi grew up half Japanese and half Italian in a white Irish Catholic neighborhood in Cleveland. He was always deeply ambivalent about his ethnic identity. He says in the movie, I didn't want to be white, but I definitely avoided my Japanese heritage and tried to be more Italian. He found a role model in his grandmother, Yoshida, who had her own unique story. Yoshida was 16 when she was interned in one of the camps. She says, I didn't talk about camp life because I wanted to forget about it and to erase it from my mind completely. I thought I would return from the internment camps in a month or two, but it ended up taking over two years of my life. I never got to college. Yoshida was 19 when she left the camps and moved to Cleveland, where the Jewish community there helped them to resettle. But Yoshida has no time for bitterness. There's no time for that, she says. The title of the film, Good Luck Soup, comes from a traditional dish served on New Year's Day. I watched this film on the PBS website. And in keeping with the burden of prophecy and the stammer of those who would speak for God, we've posted a poem by C.S. Lewis. It's called Footnote to All Prayers. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, in dream of Phidian fancies, and embrace in heart symbols that I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always, taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address 
the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. So take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. C.S. Lewis, a footnote to all future prayers. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 3rd, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.